We're in Matthew chapter 3. Here's, here's a cool thing this morning. We get to witness a baptism this morning. We get to witness it real up close in the text. It's the baptism of our Lord, the one that we are baptized into. We get to witness it. And listen, every detail of the story is so important. And you know that for a number of reasons. But one of them is this. There's a couple of the Gospels that record the birth of Jesus. All the Gospels report the baptism of Jesus. And in fact, when Mark starts his gospel, he says, here's the beginning of the gospel. Here it is in a slide. Here, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. When was that? When John the Baptist came and Jesus was baptized. That's when it really, the action heated up. He says, I want you to have a front row seat. All of them do. They want you to look at this. They want you to stop everything, zero in on this moment. And then all three members of the Trinity are involved in this. Time stops, y'all, and it, God puts the spotlight on this baptism, and there's got to be a reason for it. And if we're going to study the life of Christ at all, we've got to start with this moment. We've got to look at it, and so we will. And the things he says before, the things he says during the baptism, the things he says after, all of it's pointing to that moment and saying this is really, really significant. And I think it has a bearing on your baptism, too. So we'll get started. The first thing is, is before the baptism, we, we get introduced to the, to the baptizer. His name is John the Baptist. He's a very colorful character. He dresses funny. He eats funny stuff. He's out there in the wilderness. He's a rugged individualist. He is really about the judgment of God and bringing, you know, wanting God to straighten up this world, right? Who doesn't? I want God to bring justice to this world. So here's, he's a forerunner, and it's a quote from Isaiah describing this. God's plan is that before Jesus comes, somebody is the opening act. Somebody is like preparing the way for him. And the, the wording is like a, if you're going to build a highway, the first person, the pioneer who, who first establishes this path, but what he knows is he's conscious of it. Parents are this way all the time. When you're conscious that there's going to be other people following you, you want them to follow you and go where you go. The thing, you, you don't just clear the path enough for you to get through. You clear it to where it's easier for the next person to come on this path. You may recall when the, there's a long period of silence in the Old Testament, and then Samuel comes up, and God starts speaking again. But Samuel, Samuel has no awareness of God speaking ever before. He has no idea what to do. And so when he hears the voice, he doesn't know what to do with it. And then Eli says, here's what you do. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And he's trained to be able to recognize the voice of God. Well, John the Baptist is training people to be able to hear the final, vivid word from God, from Jesus. He doesn't just want to get to Jesus. He wants everybody to. And y'all, this is our role too. Your role in this world is not just to get to heaven. Quit saying that. Your role is to get to heaven and clear the way for as many people as you can to come with you. You want them to more easily see and be attracted to Jesus, to be able to recognize him and identify him and submit to him just like you did. And so the way you live is not just for you. It's for the people watching you. And that's John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. And he's got two major things that he does to prepare people for Jesus. First is, he says, you've got to repent. You've got to start adopting a mindset that you're willing to change because the way you're living is wrong. 
Not only is it a way of thinking, though, he says, I want your life to demonstrate this in its behaviors, in its actions. I want to see it. I want to see the evidence of your repentance in your actual life. And by being repentant, you're preparing for the real change, the kingdom of God and Jesus. And by the way, this is God's will for everybody, isn't it? God wants all men everywhere to repent. That's the thing. And so one way he's preparing is preaching repentance. The other way he's doing this is baptism. That's when you're so repentant, you're willing to submit to God whatever he asks. And for some reason in this text, baptism is humiliating. People kind of shun it. At least like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come along and they go, we, we don't need to do this. We're disciples of Abraham. We're Jews. We don't need this. The common people need this. We don't need this. And John says, oh, yes, you do. And if you're not willing to submit to the needed change of your life enough to submit even to baptism, you'll miss out on this. And Luke tells us they did. Luke tells us that those who were baptized by John entered the kingdom. Those who didn't rejected it. It's just a mindset of repentance and baptism. And that's the message of John, and that's how he prepares for it. Repent and be immersed. But he also told us this. His baptism was temporary. Your baptism, church, the one that you experienced, and we had some 30 last year who experienced this at Valley View. That's an amazing thing. Your baptism was not the same one Jesus got. Jesus got the baptism of John. John very clearly says it's not a sufficient one once the kingdom gets here. Once the one I'm pointing to gets here, my baptism fades away and his baptism becomes the one you need. He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, not just with water, but the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a distinct difference between Jesus' baptism and the baptism of John. Jesus and his sacrifice funds the Christian baptism, and empowers it and infuses it with an entire member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself. So his baptism is different. And John says when that guy comes along, everything changes and the kingdom is here. And that guy does come along. That guy is Jesus. He comes along, and here's Jesus coming along in here, and he's decided he needs to be baptized by John because that's what God says. And so at the baptism, we learn something. I want you to notice this. It's a, just a couple of simple things. He wants to, he wants to uh, dissuade Jesus from being baptized. You know what? John the Baptist is like, you're greater than me. You're the Messiah. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I insist. Jesus insisted on being baptized by John. Why? He had no sin he had no repentance necessary. People ask me this all the time. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Can I tell you something? This is just something we need to say once in a while. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens when you're immersed. And listen, you don't even know what all happens when you are immersed. You are going to learn for the rest of your life the unpacking of what happens in your baptism. You're going to learn more things all the time. It is for the forgiveness of sins. It is to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's for more than that. 
It's an amazing thing what all God does in you in your baptism. You don't have to understand it all. You just have to be willing to submit to learn it all. Do not get rebaptized every time you learn something new about that baptism. You will be wet all the time. You'll go around soaked because you're going to be baptized every time you learn something different. You don't have to do that. Jesus was baptized. Did he have to be? The answer is yes. It has to be so now. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It's necessary to fulfill all the righteousness of God. God had a plan that included Jesus being immersed, not just immersed, but it included him being immersed by John himself. It was to do everything God had willed for the Messiah to do, and one of those things was to be immersed. Jesus had to be to fulfill righteousness, and that's what he tells John, and John relents. Okay, I'll be baptized. Let it be so now, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from out of the water. All right, so that, dis that dispels this rumor that's just kind of displayed in this stained glass window. I, I like stained glass. It does teach you things. When you are at a church that has these, when the sermon goes long, or the sermon is boring to you, you can at least learn something from the pictures. Right? Just like some of you. I'll see like Daryl Hyde or somebody reading the bulletin. I know all he's doing is looking at the pictures. So here's the stained glass. The problem with this one is all the stained glass of John the Baptist looks like this. It's bizarre. Jesus is standing in the Jordan, but he's not going down into the Jordan. He's standing in the river, about to his ankles it looks like. And then John apparently gets a bowl of the water below him and pours it over his head. Why go in the Jordan? Why not just dip? Anyway, that is not what happened. He went down into the water, and when he came up out of the water, something happened. Jesus was immersed, and baptism always means immersion. It means completely submerged under. And not only is that the example of Scripture, but that's the explanation. That's why God chose baptism. It is a joining Jesus because when he was buried and he rose again, he wants something, something to picture that, to reenact that, and water and burial is perfect. Well, after he's come up out of the water, something even more dramatic happens, right? We have dramatic stuff before. We have this a powerful image in, and then we have things happen after that baptism. The heavens were opened. It's like heaven cracked open. It's like the curtain between heaven and earth opened up, and now all of a sudden God is present in a greater way than he normally is. This image of this wording of heavens were opened is often the case in a dramatic vision of the Old Testament, like the prophets, the heaven was opened. And it's like Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel's about to have his major vision, the heavens open up and God comes into earthly territory in a powerful way and communes with man, right? And he gives Ezekiel this vision that ends with the glory of God lifting up out of the temple and leaving. God leaves his people. He's sick of dealing with sinful people, and he up and leaves. And I wonder sometimes if the baptism of Jesus isn't to be pictured, God opens, the, opens it up back up, and all of a sudden he puts his glory back on earth among his people in the presence of this man who's just now been baptized. This is the glory of God returning. 
He's coming back to speak again, to give his people the new movement of God, the kingdom of God finally. The heavens are opened up. And then it says, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. We've, uh, I don't understand this whole thing, but I wonder, who saw the dove? And it's not clear necessarily all the time, but we see Jesus sees the dove. John the Baptist speaks of seeing the dove when he talks about it in John chapter 1. The other Gospels mention it, but here's Luke, and I want you to, I'm using Luke here to help clarify. When all the people were baptized, when Jesus also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. The Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. This must have actually been a dove that came down on him after he came out of the waters of baptism. Why a dove? You know any significance to a dove? And people debate this all the time. You've got the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in creation, but it doesn't say dove. Israel's called like a dove in one of the prophets, but it was a negative term. I have to, I, I just want to picture this in my head. You know, like, do you remember the ark, right? And God was judging the world. And when he was about done, when it was about over, Noah's thinking, this is about through. I'm going to send the dove out. And it comes back, has no place to land. It comes back then with something in its mouth. And then it goes out and it, it's done. It doesn't come back and he knows everything's dry. The judgment of God is done. I'm wondering if God is not saying to us, or the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in this way, that Jesus is a, it's like symbolically saying that the judgment of God rests on you. You're going to carry it out and you're going to finalize this. And you're, I don't know that. It may be reading way too much, but the point is the, the dove comes down and lands on Jesus and stays there for a little bit, right? And what you have then is God enters the picture. You've got Jesus, the Son, being immersed in the water. You've got the Holy Spirit of God coming like a dove. And then you've got the third member of the Trinity. It's like we're stopping all time. We're pausing in the middle of all this, and we're saying, shining a spotlight, saying, pay attention to this man. The entire Godhead gets involved. God gives himself a personal speaking part that doesn't often happen in Scripture. Most of the time he sends a dream or he sends an angel or he sends a prophet. But he says, no, no, not this time. I'm coming myself. I'm speaking myself. I'm going to endorse him out loud. That's pretty significant. That only happens three times in the life of Jesus. This is my son. This is my son, my beloved son. Now that first phrase appears from, and by the way, Jesus, God's words are his own. He's spoken them before. And it's very familiar to any Jew back then. It's from Psalm 2. It's on the screen, the first part of Psalm 2. This is what was spoken over every new king who took the throne over God's people. A priest would stand over them and read Psalm 1 to, to be understood as God is declaring you his special, special servant. 
more than a servant, you are a son over God's people. I've begotten you. I'm using you in a very direct way as the king. So I'm wondering, God had to say this. He, I'm not going to let a priest say this because I'm going to say it. He punctures the entire scene. He pauses it all and says, I'm going to say it myself. This right here is my son. And he's on the throne for the rest of your time. I won't say eternity. He's not going to be the king for eternity, is he? Because when everything ends on that last day and everything is subjected to him, he takes that kingdom and he hands it to the Father. And he submits himself to the Father and God is all in all. But until then, y'all, until then, Jesus is ruling on the throne. He is our king, and he's the son of God. That's who he is. But that's not all he says. He says, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. I'm delighted in him. Listen, fathers, loosen your tongues. Loosen your tongues when your kids are young. Be willing to tell them the pleasure they bring you. Be willing to tell them, especially at significant moments, not because of great things they've done, but at significant moments, tell them the pleasure your kids bring you. Let them know that you are so pleased in them. And God says, I am pleased with them. It's after his baptism, y'all, that God looks at him and says, I am pleased with you. From Isaiah 42. Now, here's a whole other series. Here's a, a little quick, little quick, Old Testament rundown. This part of Isaiah from 40 to 60 is about the suffering servant who's going to come. He's going to fulfill God's plan among humanity, and he's going to have to suffer for it. And he's going to be gentle, and he's going to be mild, but he's going to be mistreated. It, in, it, it includes Isaiah 53 about this innocent, sinless person who dies on behalf of all the children. That's, the, that's, the, that's part of the, 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 the servant song. But this is the first part. In Isaiah, he says, God says, this is God speaking. He's using the prophets, but God speaking. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit on him to bring forth justice to the nation. This is my servant. You know what Jesus is doing in his baptism? He's receiving the power of God for sure. He's receiving the spirit God puts upon him. But let me tell you, he is embracing his servanthood. He is saying to God, I'm offering you complete. I'm going to do exactly what you sent me to do. And I know what that means. It means be rejected. It means be betrayed. It means be beaten. It means die. It means let myself be put into the grave. And then you're going to raise me up. This is what you've asked me to do. And I'm embracing that role. And you do the same thing when you're baptized. And don't you forget it. You're getting stuff. Salvation and the Spirit, but you're given something. You're laying your life before God, saying, God, whatever you ask me to do, you mean with your sexual life? Yes, with your sexual life. Do you mean I've got to turn over my mind to you? Yes. Do you mean I have to submit to authority? Yes. Do you mean I can't just act out in anger all the time? That's exactly what I mean. So before you get immersed... Make sure you realize that you're offering yourself as a suffering servant. That belongs to the application process, and I got out of order there. 
God speaks. God speaks over Jesus. Who does he speak to? Who's listening when he says, this is my son? If he's speaking to Jesus, he'd say, you are my son. And he may have said that too, but Matthew says, this is my son. Who's he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to everyone who was there. He's talking to Satan because as soon as chapter 4 opens up and the Spirit leads Jesus in the wilderness, here comes Satan and his first words at every temptation are, if you really are the Son. He's designating him our Savior. He's designating him the one to defeat Satan. And Satan hears it and immediately comes after him. And he immediately defeats Satan for the first time. But it's going to have to be a posture for the rest of his life. He's speaking this to Satan into the realm of evil. He's speaking this to everyone who, who witnesses the baptism. He's speaking that to everyone who ever reads about the baptism from then on out. He's speaking to us. He's telling us this is the one to listen to, and this is the one who delights him. And the fact that he was willing to submit to the waters of baptism like this is pleasing to God. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just tell you this. There's a little section here I could cut out and make this shorter. And I've got three seconds to decide whether I'm going to do that or not. Because I'm going I'm to face the brunt of your criticism if I don't. But there's some things that just need to be said sometimes about this. So I'm just debating. Just give me a second. I'm going to do it. Symbolic view. Here's us. Yep, brace yourself, break your sack launches out. Symbolic view. This is what people come along, because I'm going to tell you this. You're going to get this. If you're around Valley View very long, you'll see tonight. We are very high view of baptism here. It's very important to us to preach this and teach this nearly every week in some form. And it's partly because of what the world teaches about it, but it's also partly because we're being faithful just to Scripture itself. But the symbolic view, there's three major views of this. I'm going to go through this really fast. The symbolic view says, I'm saved before and later on I'll be baptized. I'm saved before. I've done, I've done the sinner's prayer. I've repented. I believe it. And then a few months later, a few weeks later, I'll schedule my baptism and, and be immersed. And there's, there's, no, there's, a, there's a connection. I, there's a connection. And listen, we've, we've misrepresented these people over the years. It's not that they don't believe in baptism. They have a high regard for baptism. They just don't want to say that it is essential in your response in order to receive the blessing of that gospel. They, they just don't want to make those connections. So they separate these two. They still think, and, and they've got some verses for this. I'm going to put a couple on the screen. Uh, you know, when, when Romans chapter 10, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved. See, all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord, right? That's in Romans, remember that. And then John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. So if you just believe, you'll receive eternal life. But, but, but can I tell you, here's the passage we choose and everybody says, you know what's coming, right? Go ahead and tell me what the next slide is. Yeah, Acts 2, 38. Here's why we say it. Those other short, shorthand verses about salvation are fine in their context. It's to churches. People have already done it. He's referring them back to what they've already done. This one is the first time the gospel is fully preached. This one is unbelievers who've never responded to the gospel before asking, what must I do? 
This is the answer that we give to unbelievers who want to know, what must I do? We stick with this answer for a couple of reasons. Because of the context, but also because of the verse 39, which we often don't quote. This is the promise. This is the plan for you and your children, all who are far off, whom the Lord your God will call to himself. As God's calling, what's his, what's his plan for how you respond? Repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Back up that slide. That's a bad one. Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Both of those, the and, connects the same thing. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. It looks like both are necessary for this end result. The symbolic view doesn't like that, and so here's their version. They take it out from where it was, and they say, repent every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of your sins, forgiveness of the Holy Spirit, and then be baptized sometime. Listen to me, because I'm going to offend everybody. Be ready. I'm going to offend everybody. I hope those who are praying Jesus into their heart and praying the sinner's prayer, and then weeks, months later, they're baptized. I hope God accepts that. I dearly hope so. I take no joy in the fact that I think that that's a miss and it's a problem, but I, I hope so. I cannot proclaim that. I cannot endorse that. I can't be one person who says at the end of a service, I'll oh, just pray Jesus. And I can't do it. Acts 2.38 won't let me. I cannot. I've been raised on this. I know this. But it's not about that. It's what Peter says at the first time the gospel's preached. And he says, this is the plan for everybody. Baptism is a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. Second view is the magic view. Something we are accused of having this view. The water is laced with spiritual magical formulas that once you are in it, you come out of it and you are prepared for eternity. It's called baptismal regeneration. There's something in the water. You're making the water essential. The water's not essential. The action of being immersed and obedience to the gospel is what's essential. And I want to make a distinction there, right? It's not a magical thing like that. But we're, we're accused of saying it this, and maybe Acts 2 lends itself to it. It is not like an isolated moment, like this is the, ah, this is the, the halos around the baptism, like that's all that matters. And sometimes, y'all, we come across this way. We some, it's a secret thing and baptize a young person and then hopefully they'll learn something no no there, it's, it's, a, it's a step along the way but let me tell you what's unique about the baptism step everything else that's required or necessary is a response for salvation and there's always a necessary response anybody who says well we don't require a response we just expect you to repent repentance is a response Every other response you make to the gospel that's required for the benefits to come to you are repeated for the rest of your life. You will continue to hear for the rest of your life. You will continue to believe things for the rest of your life and learn new things. You will continue to confess and repent. You better. You're going to continue doing that, but there's this one part of the response that happens once in your life. And it's baptism. 
It's the last thing in response. Is it the most important thing? No. Is it a magical thing? No. But y'all, when you're standing at the altar, everything that you do, everything, there's, there's this relationship you're having with this girl, this guy, whoever you're marrying, this, the, the person that you're going to make these vows to, there's, you've had a relationship. The relationship doesn't start right there. No, no, it's been going for a long time. But y'all, when you put that ring on that finger, something forever changes. The before and the after are so striking, right? That's why we call, that's why baptism, we view it so, but it's not a magical formula. And here's why I want to say that. Next screen. The once saved, always saved people will say, once you believe, you can't even fall away. You can't even get out of it. You are set for life. And it's some magical, they make belief the magical formula. And they get on to us for making baptism the formula. And y'all, sometimes we do. Sometimes we're so, so geared for another number, for another baptism, that we forget to talk about the repentance that makes the baptism have a validity to it. There is a change about to take place. You gotta give the rest of your life to God. You gotta submit to him in baptism, yes, but you gotta submit to him in your sexuality. You gotta submit to him in your language, in your marriage, in your parenting. You gotta submit to him in everything. It starts right there, but boy, oh boy, it doesn't end there. It just continues to every other nook and cranny of your life. It's not a secret magical formula. Quit making it that. Third view, final view, biblical view. It's a response of obedience. Once somebody understands the gospel and decides, I'm going to turn away from self-governing, deciding for myself what I'll do. Instead, I'm going to turn to King Jesus and bow my knee to him. Nothing magical is happening, but something by faith powerful is happening as the Spirit comes into your life. It's symbolic, but not just symbolic. Last thing we're going to do is just, what does this have to do with Jesus' baptism we started with? Well, we're applying, this biblical view is applying the lessons that are valid. Jesus was not baptized with the same baptism we are, but there are some similarities, and here they are. It's a universal requirement. You can never be so good or so righteous that you don't need repentance and baptism. That's everybody. I don't care what language you speak or what country you're from, what color your skin is or what background you are. You could have grown up in church all your life, never missed a Bible class. You need this too, just like John the Baptist said. Number two, repentance is a necessary prerequisite, but also result. I want you to get this. If you have not repented and changed your mind about you being in charge of your life, your baptism is you getting wet. But if you've changed your mind, you decided, now I'm, I don't know how I'm going to make all these changes. I don't know what all changes they'll be, but I'm ready to turn my life over to God and let him direct my life. Great, let's be immersed. And then after that, it will continue. That repentance will continue the rest of your life. You don't have to get everything together before you're baptized, but you need to be willing to be told how to get everything together before you're baptized. Number two, three. My counting is off. It's what fulfills your righteousness. If Jesus had to be baptized by John to be right with God and he brought on a whole new powerful baptism of water Holy Spirit and fire is it not also true that for you to be right with God you need to be immersed it's how the Holy Spirit comes into your life Jesus is endorsed publicly I know that 
He's called God's beloved son. He's anointed in a way that we aren't. But isn't it interesting? After he's baptized, that's when the Spirit comes. And in Acts chapter 2, after we're baptized, that's when the Spirit comes. He just chooses that moment to be the, the moment he indwells a believer who responds. And finally, it brings God pleasure when you are immersed. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You're making yourself a child of God in a way that no one else has been. Yes, He made every human being. We're an image of God, but, but, but it's your obedience and response to Him that makes you a child of God by faith, not by blood. John chapter 1. Baptism's a big deal. Don't make, it, don't make it magical, but don't just make it symbolic. Make it biblical. Let it be everything God intends it to be for us. And there's two responses this morning. If you've been immersed, and many of you have been, I'm asking you, live out of and up to your baptism. Be a child of God. Be his servant who's willing to submit to him and everything. That's what baptism was, a declaration you made. Yes, it is a, pleasure, a privilege of having your sins forgiven, but it's a pledge of a good conscience to God as well. If you've never been immersed, why not be? If you haven't repented, don't. Don't mess with it. But if you have a person who's willing to repent, Bow your knee to King Jesus and say, I'm going to submit my life to you. I'm ready to receive. If you're ready, then let's do this. Be immersed. Be a child of God. Bring God pleasure. Have the Holy Spirit to direct you toward holiness the rest of your life. There's what you're called to do. You've got your orders. If you've been immersed, you know what you should do. If you've not been, you know what you should do. And now's the time to do it as we stand, as we sing together.